Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 11th, 2021, and it seems in some ways as if our COVID nightmare, if that's the right word, is coming to an end, at least in the United States. Um, uh, the, the latest headline is that we have all these millions of doses of vaccines that can't be used, but uh, more, of, more of them are being used. Um, and one of the things I think about the COVID crisis that's become increasingly self-evident over the last 15 or 16 months is that doctors have been playing a more and more prominent role in our culture um, and indeed in our political life. Here we have a headline from today suggesting that doctors are once again urging delay in the next lockdown in the UK. Uh, doctors in the US, particularly the great Dr. Anthony Fauci, have become increasingly prominent in our uh, media. Um, not all doctors, though, are... I think, optimistic about doctor culture. Doctor culture, of course, in the pandemic have been presented as heroes, as people on the front lines fighting the pandemic. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, but my guest on the, on the show today is uh, a doctor, very prominent doctor, Robert Pearl, who in an LA Times piece, the headlines of which I showed you a couple of seconds ago from uh, last month, suggests that um, there's a problem with medical culture and indeed doctors in the United States. He has a new book out, Dr. Pearl, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. It's a very controversial book, and I'm thrilled to have uh, the author of Uncaring, um, uh, Dr. Robert Pearl, or Robert Pearl, MD, as he's formerly known on the cover of his book on the show today. Uh, Robert Pearl, how surprised have you been with the visibility of doctors in our COVID crisis? You're a, a lifelong, very distinguished career in the medical profession. You ran the, you ran. Kaiser Permanente, you're a doctor in your own right, now you're a, a controversial author. What is the, what have you taken away from the last 16 months in the way in which doctors have been presented, particularly to the American public? Well, Andrew, thank you so much for having me and for your audience. I want them to know that all profits from the book go to Doctors Without Borders, a wonderful charity organization, as I did in my first book. And I also want to stress that the culture of medicine, the physician culture, has both wonderful, heroic sides and, as the book points out, some downsides that I think it's important to address, both to stop the harm for patients and for physicians. So as you note in the coronavirus pandemic, early in the course when there was not enough protective gear, Doctors went to work 12 and 24 hours a day. When there were no gowns, they put on garbage bags and no masks, they put on salad lids. They knew that as they passed tubes down through the mouth and to the lungs, they'd go through the vocal cords and patients would cough 
spewing virus in the doctor's face, and they did it anyway. And when two patients needed the same ventilator, they figured out how they could put them both on one machine, something that had never been done before, and something that had never even considered. But at the same time, I think COVID brought out some of the issues, issues that go along with systemic problems. And that's the key message. You know, in the medical profession, the caduceus, these two snakes that wind around his staff, that's often a symbol. And you have the systemic problems and the cultural problems, and they came together in a way to expose some of the challenges. And I'd be happy to talk with them, talk with you about all of them. Right. So, Robert, I think in a, in a, in a funny kind of way, um, you've taken very much of a medical approach to the institutional, cultural, economic, uh, and scientific problems with, 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 with your profession. Um, and I'm quoting you here from the book. You say, uh, you write, well before the coronavirus outbreak, American healthcare has, has staggered and doctors have been stumbling for decades. The signs of failure were clear and present. Medical costs had already bankrupted millions of patients and sent millions of others deep into debt. This was already a system that allowed doctors to send uh, surprise out-of-network medical bills to the people they treated and then sue the patients they couldn't afford to pay. This was already a system in which a third of medical procedures performed were scientifically proven to add no clinical value. This was a system in which pill mill physicians spawned a deadly prescription drug epidemic, which took more than 60,000 lives a year and contributed to a three-year decline in U.S. life expectancy. Um, Robert Pearl, wow, you ran Kaiser. So this is a big deal. You're saying the system is broken or was broken and in some ways continues to be broken. Is that fair? Kaiser Permanente has a long history of being mission-driven way back to its founder, Dr. Cindy Garfield, and the results that we were able to achieve were superior to the rest of the nation, which is part of why I wrote my first book. Right, about and, and to be fair, I, I, I'm not pointing my finger no. at Kaiser. I actually am a member of Kaiser, and I've been a member of other systems, and I think Kaiser's excellent. So I'm, not, I'm certainly not pointing the finger at Kaiser, and I'm not asking you to defend Kaiser. More broadly, what I'm suggesting is that you're saying the system you you take if if the U.S. medical system is a patient, you're telling it you're telling it the truth, or you're telling us the truth about this patient that it's seriously ill. Is that fair? I'm telling you, seriously ill, and I'm pointing to specific problems. So the the fee for service system that rewards volume and not value is a systemic issue. And as you say, the Mayo Clinic has shown that 30% of what doctors do add no value. But the question also becomes, okay, a doctor's just motivated by the money. And if they are motivated by the money, how do they justify it? And my answer is no, it's the culture of medicine that says intervention is better than prevention. So they don't focus as much on prevention. There's also a systemic problem. They're not paid to do so, but it's broken. It's fragmented. You don't have doctors working together. The electronic health record that they use slows them down and becomes, gets between them and the patient. You know, the most common way doctors exchange information, Andrew, is the fax machine. 
a machine invented in 1834. Oh my God, Rabbi. I can't believe you're telling me this. I'm not going to the doctor ever. I, I would never trust a doctor who, who, who uses a fax machine. I have to tell you a funny story. It's actually not that funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was in New York. Uh, like you, I live in the Bay Area. Uh, but I had my first trip out and I was in uh, the W Hotel in Union Square coming down in the elevator. And I was with a woman, uh, a, a, a stranger woman came into the elevator and she was thrilled. And she said to me, I have to tell you, I'm so happy. My daughter just got accepted to um, to medical school. It was actually in Vienna, of Austria, of all places. Uh, but I thought of you in the elevator and I thought of you since. Should that woman have been celebrating from your book, it suggests that the medical profession in some ways is a pretty miserable, exploitative profession. Sure, doctors get very well paid um, and, and it's still a, pre a prestigious profession, but it doesn't seem in some ways, judging from your book, to be uh, a profession um, full of happy people. Is that fair? That's very fair to say that today, 44% of physicians report being burned out. There's 40 physician suicides a year. And some of that are the systemic issues, the bureaucratic tasks, the need for prior authorization, the insurance companies that stop doctors from doing what they need to do. But the book is written because, number one, there's also problems inside the culture with hierarchy, where certain doctors are elevated over others. And we undervalue primary care as an example a specialty right. that increases longevity two and a half times more than special, 10 primary care doctors increase two and a half times more than 10 specialists. So it's both of those pieces that are there, but it's still, my opinion, the greatest profession, but I want doctors to lead the change and create the future because I think that they can if they can get past the culture and address the systemic issues. Yeah, the book's written with a lot of love. You dedicate it to your mother and father. Uh, you don't have kids of your own. Is the medical profession, in a sense, like your extended family? Like uh, you, you're, you're, pre you're presenting the medical profession as, as a child with problems that can be improved. Is that fair in terms of your approach to uh, medicine? Well, I do have two kids, by the way, who are now grown and uh, close with them and love them very much. Oh, I apologize. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason no I, I assume that is because you didn't say anything about those kids in your, in, in your acknowledgement to the book, whereas you, you talked about your parents. So my first book I dedicated to my father. My second book I dedicated to my mother. Maybe right. I'll dedicate the third and fourth to my kids. I it's apologize. That's very yeah. embarrassing that I missed. So 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 let's no problem. That out. We won't edit it because that would be <laughs> cheating. But uh I got that one wrong. Let's go back to preventative care. Okay. Um, you say uh, when it comes to the coronavirus, 94% of hospitalized coronavirus patients had at least one major chronic condition like diabetes, chron uh, chronic lung disease, obesity, heart failure, or hypertension. 88% uh, of these had two. You, you write, had physicians invested more time and effort over the years in preventing and better managing these types of chronic diseases uh, many of the patients who died would have never been critically ill in the first place. Again, wow, this from a, what, one of the most distinguished physicians and, um, uh, and, and writers in the profession. I always assumed, at least in Kaiser, and again, I don't want to turn this into a, a conversation about Kaiser, but I always assumed doctors were trying harder on the preventative side. You're still saying that they're failing on that front? 
So this is great. First of all, that data comes from New York City. So any of your viewers who want to know where it comes from. Uh, hypertension was the number one diagnosis for the patients who were, became admitted and died. Across the United States today, it is well controlled 55 to 60% of the time. In Kaiser Permanente, we control it 90%. And that to me is a key difference. Hypertension is the number one cause of strokes. It's a number one cause of kidney failure. It's a contributor heart disease. So why could Kaiser Permanente get outcomes that were 90% control and the rest of medicine only 55 to 60? Part of it is the systemic reasons. Doctors are not paid enough to do it. But some of it also to me is about the culture. And in Kaiser Permanente, both the history and the fact that reimbursement is through capitation, prevention becomes important, far more important. In a fee-for-service world, intervention on blocking the coronary artery is the, the apex. In Kaiser Permanente, we unblocked the arteries, but we prevented 40% more of them from not occluding in the first place. That's what I meant in that particular area. The doctors in Kaiser Permanente didn't have any more money. They didn't have anything really different. They had the same drugs, they had the same training, but the culture elevated that in importance along with avoiding medical error, along with avoiding complications from chronic disease. It's all these pieces that fit together, as well as offering telemedicine. Right, it telemedicine, and of course, uh, and of course, uh, the internet, the digital revolution. Here's a headline um, today. Uh, iPhone health apps feature give doctors easier access to data. You're talking to me from Stanford University. I'm in San Francisco, the heart of the digital revolution. Uh, on the horizon, the next big thing in digital is, of course, AI, smart machines. And the threat, I guess, to doctors in the longer term are smart machines that replicate them, that do a better job than doctors. One of the things that have come up from time to time in our show is the, the issue of empathy. We had the distinguished artificial intelligence thinker from MIT, Sherry Turkle, on the show uh, last month. Uh, she's written a new autobiography, The Empathy Diaries. We also had the, um, uh, the, the tech writer and worker, Jimena Vecoechoron, uh, talking about reclaiming the lost art of true connection, listening like you mean it. It seems to me, reading your book and listening to you, uh, Robert Pearl, that, that doctors need to listen better. They need to be more empathetic less work on the hardcore research and analysis, more on the human-to-human -human connectivity. Is that fair? Physicians, I want to stress, work very hard and have a lot of time pressure. At the same time, in the culture of medicine, physicians don't value the patient's time. They don't value the patient's input. They wait it's been documented something like 10 to 20 seconds before they interrupt. Some of that is the systemic problems again, completing the paperwork, making sure they can get the authorization. But some of it is just the way that they are trained. And remember, culture comes, it's the values, the beliefs, and the norms that you learn early in your life, in the case of a doctor in medical school and residency. And it's often 20 years passed when you learned it. 
And we learned it at a time that medicine was very patriarchal, that medicine was very much the doctor above and the patient below. We've now moved into a different world where patients have a lot of information coming off of the internet. They have expectations through travel and retail that they're going to be treated as customers, as consumers, and medicine does not have that built into the culture. Again, I want to stress, some of it because that time has been stolen from doctors, some of it because doctors have been able to, willing to give it up, and that's the what we have to put right. back in place. You, you, you seem to be suggesting that the, the traditional medical profession is a 20th century top-down one, very much coming out of industrial society. And now in the digital networked age, doctors need to learn to listen. They need to be more empathetic. They need to recognize that uh, the world we live in is, is no longer a, a, a top-down one. How do we do that, Robert? Um, your book has uh, the fifth section. Part five is the, you, you call it the evolution of physician culture. Is this something that needs to be taught in medical school? Is it something that comes more broadly from the culture? And how can patients help? It starts in medical school. And I think if you look at the training in the first two years, which is the orientation to medicine, what do we stress wrote memorization of arcane facts. Now, why is that taught in medical school in the first two years? Because if you go back into the 20th century and you wanted to carry medical knowledge on your back, you'd have to have a 50-pound backpack of all your textbooks. Today, we call it a smartphone. So why don't we change yeah. the education to understand how to use modern technology? Let's just hold it up. This is my doctor, Robert, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. So why don't we do that? Because it doesn't fit in with the medical model. It doesn't fit in with a doctor being all-knowing and patients being less so. It's not a negative intent. Doctors love patients. The last thing they ever want to do is harm them. But in the book, what I stress is let's look at the data and let's look at what happens and let's react to it. A great example to me, Andrew, was December of 2019, two months before the coronavirus comes ashore. The federal government puts out information that says healthcare is going to go up by five to six percent a year for the next decade. Look at that. That means it's going to go from 3.7 trillion to 6.2 trillion. $2.5 trillion of increased cost. I waited for the national organizations to say, this is ridiculous. We could do so much more around prevention, uh, social determinants of health, education. There's so many things that we could do. Right, prevention, prevention. As you say, um, physicians and healthcare organizations across the United States do not invest enough time and energy in successful preventing in successfully preventing chronic illness or helping patients avoid its complications. All too often, and I think patients have, have had this experience, Robert, um, they're treated almost as the enemy. Uh, you have the story, it's a very tragic story, of a man you call Mike uh, at the end of your book. Uh, Mike is the classic example of a 20th century doctor uh, who loved the profession but has fallen out of love with it. Tell us the story of Mike and why it's so instructive both for the book and to, to fix the medical system, to, to fix medical culture. 
So Mike is a plastic surgeon. Mike's not his real name. I have to change no, it. No, I know. Wait, wait. And Mike is anonymous, but I assume uh, he knows who he is and you know oh, who he knows who he is. is yes. Uh, and he's someone who's a very skilled surgeon. He had his own office for a while. And then he got tired of the system of medicine, took a job in a group. It was not inside Kaiser Permanente. It was someplace else. And he progressively found himself feeling like he was on a treadmill, feeling like he was just churning out work again and again and again. And he saw a woman and he knew what to do. Uh, this had to do with a woman who came in for a breast reduction surgery. He knew he needed a mammogram and he thought that it was done, but he never really checked on it. No one else checked on it. And in the end, the woman never had the mammogram and she ended up having uh, cancer of the breast uh, it was a mistake that could have been taken care of in a variety of ways, but he saw himself in this experience as the victim, and in the end, he couldn't bear any responsibility. And to me, it's a great metaphor for what's going on because doctors are victims today of the healthcare system being broken, but that doesn't mean that they don't also contribute in some ways to it. And, you know, I use a great example of this, the issue of racism. Yes, why do two to three times more black patients die from COVID-19 than white patients? And physicians right. will tell you that they work jobs, they couldn't stay home and do Zoom. They take buses and subways, multi-generational houses. There's a long list of them. Well, I found this headline uh, when it comes to race and racism, the headline today uh, about doctors still struggling to detect skin cancer in black people, which I assume is another manifestation of racism. Uh, your, your book really does um, focus in, 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 in some ways uh, on this, uh, on, on, on the problem of race and racism in the medical industry. How can we fix that, Robin? The first thing is to recognize it. So what I was going to say within all that is it doesn't explain why in the early part of the pandemic, when two patients came to the ED with the same symptoms, we tested white patients twice as often as black patients. You're giving a great example. Every dermatology textbook is filled with pictures of melanoma, but they're all in patients who are white. How do we detect it in patients who are black? It's not that doctors in any way want, it's not conscious discrimination, it's that we overlook it. And I got asked on a podcast recently, is implicit bias, this ability to sort of overlook things racism, and my answer is no, it's not racism. It actually traces back 20,000 years when we had to make these split second decisions about whether someone coming at us was friend or enemy. But when we know we fail to act on it, Andrew, that is racism. And that's what we're seeing, I believe, when we have this difference in outcome simply by the color of someone's skin and we don't take actions to change it let me give you a quick example. Well, well, yeah, you, you, you talk about this in, um, in, in, in what you're looking for is, is colorblindness. Can AI help with that? Can, can uh, smart machines help fix the racism in the system? Or will the smart machines be programmed by white doctors so that they'll actually compound the problem? This is exactly the key point. If the AI is programmed, it doesn't matter the color of the skin, but if it's programmed to assume as an example, as it did for Optum inside United Healthcare, 
that patients who get more money spent on them are sicker, it will conclude, as it did in a famous study, that the black patient is less sick. By the way, the same thing just happened in the NFL, where they had different categories in football for money being given to people with head injury, and it assumed that people who were black had lower intelligence. So this assumptions built into human thinking, if AI is not aware of what's going on, it will make the same problems. At the same time, it can look at the outcomes. It can note the fact that doctors give 40% less pain medication to black patients, and it can look at the symptoms, and it can say and notify the doctor, you sure you want to only give 60% of your normal dose to this patient? And that will now trigger in the people who want it to be, to be aware of it, the need to change practice, not because they are racist and discriminatory, but because their actions unintentionally are racist and discriminatory. Robert, um, medicine is a profession, uh, I think, uh, in which women play an increasingly important role. When it comes to the issue of empathy, of talking to patients, of listening, is there a, a gender divide or is this a socioeconomic one? Are the the top white female doctors who are coming out of Stanford or Yale, are they as egotistical and as bound up in their own mythology as, as the white men? I've only seen the data that's been published and it indicates that women are more empathetic. They spend more time with the patient uh, and they tend to ask more emotionally sensitive questions and bring out issues that are of great concern. So in that sense, it's optimistic. At the same time, as I write about in the book, the experience of women in medicine is quite problematic, that in the percentage of medical students reporting that they've had um, issues around uh, sexual discrimination is close to half. And, and the ones that have harassment is 20%. Right. So it's not that different from any other profession. Um, Robert, the, the, the female spirit um, distinguishing this book is, as you've said, your, your mother. Uh, you dedicated in loving memory of my mother, Lillian Pearl. And, and you're not just dedicating, it, dedicating uh, the book to her. Um, at the end, um, you talk about your love of medicine. I, you, you write, I have spent my entire career in love with medicine. Um, I feel as passionate about profession today as I did on my first day of Anatomy 101. But you suggest that you learned about love from your mother, that your mother taught you how to love. And that's a, a lesson which um, has, has, has driven your life and your relationship with medicine. Tell me a little bit more about your mother and indeed your father, their love, and what your mother taught you in your life. My mother was a remarkable woman. Uh, she grew up in a very poor house. They sometimes worried about having enough food, and yet she still managed to go to college and to uh, raise our family and to uh, help my brother, who's also a physician, assisted the CEO of a healthcare company. So she instilled in all of us this type of love of helping others to improve health and to become better but i specifically she's sort of the reverse she's the antithesis of this anonymous mike in the book isn't she she loves unquestionably and generously yes but i poured down the fact in, in the book that my parents loved each other to the very very end 
that my dad saw my mother as perfect. She literally could not have been a half of 1% better. He could never see a flaw. And that's how I started medicine. I loved it and could not see its flaws for a long time. But then I point out that my mother, who loved my father as much as he loved her, could also see some of his flaws. Fortunately for them, his flaws were not that great. But that's, I'll say, where I am now in medicine. I point out the problems out of love, out of wanting it to get better so that your friend's uh, or the person on the elevator's child can enjoy medicine as much as I have. I believe it's the greatest profession that there is. It's a privilege to help other people get better. We have to work on these systematic issues, but we also have to address the cultural ones. We have to elevate prevention, elevate patient safety, elevate uh, primary care, eliminate the things that add no value and replace them with things that add a lot of value, make it affordable for more people. You know, I was in the Oregon Health Services a few years ago, and I saw a sign that said quality, service, and cost across the top. The bottom said pick any two. That day is done. We can do all three, but we have to change both the system of medicine and the culture to accomplish it. And when we do, we'll have a healthier nation and it will fulfill the dreams of my mother. It will fulfill the dreams of your mother, but I think you also recognize as a realist, it's never going to be perfect. One of the things that uh, finally, Robert, that I wouldn't say is missing from the book that I didn't see that some people might like to have seen was um, a more structural uh, attempt to reform the system, to, to move away from a privatized medical system, to move towards perhaps the Canadian or the British system. Uh, I assume that you don't think that probably would work and that the American system of a privatized health system sort of somehow united with a more public option, Obamacare, that that can in the long run work? Well, my first book, Mistreated, the one that was a Washington Post bestseller, was specifically about that. Right. So I didn't uh, go delve into that in my second book that's there. I think it's less important who pays for the insurance than that it be comprehensive, which I definitely support, and that it be capitated, paid a set fee to take care of a population at the delivery system level, bringing together primary care, specialty care, hospitals, because when you do that, you evolve the culture. All of a sudden, prevention becomes more important, avoids complications, doing the right things the first time, putting in place effective um, technology. These are the changes that happen when you change the culture that surrounds doctors. And if we can do all of that, I'm not, it won't be perfect, but I believe it could be dramatically better than today. 20% higher quality, 20% more convenient, and 20% lower cost. That's what I was able to achieve as CEO in Kaiser Permanente. And I think we can do that across the United States. Uh, Robert Pearl, the author of Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. We've talked, uh, it's a must read for anyone interested in reforming the health system or doctor culture. Uh, Robert, um, we've talked about the impact of COVID. You're in uh, Palo Alto in the South Bay. I'm in, the, uh, in San Francisco. We're still kind of in the post-COVID age. We're not sure whether we should go in or out. In addition to your uh, books, Uncaring, and then the previous bestseller, as you said, Mistreated. Uh, what other book would you suggest people read about the healthcare system in this country? 
what do you think has shone a light? Maybe not a book, a movie, a show, anything that helps people make sense of the doctor, of, of our medical culture, of its strengths and weaknesses. I don't know that there's a book that I'd recommend overall. I love Atul Gawande and this, the material he writes. I think his book, Being Mortal, about end of life and our failure, again, culturally, to confront the realities that the science has moved ahead of, I'll say, maybe the human desire and that we have people that we're able to keep alive who uh, will never talk, walk, eat, uh, control their bladder, their bowels, and we don't engage with them about the important conversations about their life. Very complex issue. I think it's one of the best books and one that I would recommend to anyone who wants to learn more about the culture of medicine and the impact it has on patients. Robert Pearl, I don't know about the end of life. We're at the end of time. Wonderful interview. Congratulations on the book. And I'd love to have you back on the show in the not too distant future to talk about the American medical system, which is both, I think, a very profound mirror on the strengths and weaknesses of our culture and something that we need to get right as we move forward in the post-COVID age. Keep well, and we'll talk again very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.